You're listening to teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. Well, good morning. How's everybody doing? Good, good. It is really, really good to hear from you. I'm going to get my mic situated for a moment. Uh, If you're a guest, we are really glad that you're here. My name is Michael Bailey. I'm one of the pastors here at Midtown, and so I'm excited to get to be with you guys as a little family as we open up God's Word together. Uh, I wanted to begin, I didn't think I was going to begin this way, but now that I'm up here, I feel kind of compelled to do it. Uh, I wanted to begin by confessing a mistake that I have made to you. So a few weeks ago, I preached a sermon. In that said sermon, I gave an illustration about the movie Taken. Some of you are familiar with this. You remember where I may may be going. I said about the movie that, man, uh, this movie would have been completely different had, instead of his daughter being taken, they took his dog instead. You tracking with me now? Some of you? Yeah, I see you. This is great. So uh, apparently, I mean, in my mind, this was utterly ridiculous. It's like, okay, that movie uh, immediately goes from action thriller to comedy in the blink of an eye. Apparently, what I didn't know was that that is precisely the plot line to the John Wick movie franchise. I did not know this. You knew this, and good on you for knowing this. Apparently, that is a deeply loved movie franchise of your own. Uh, And so I I did not know, so I wanted to get up here and just kind of confess to you my ignorance on that front. Uh, I made a mistake. I am sorry. Uh, But secondly, to defend myself just a little bit, I'm not saying what this says, okay? I'm just saying the fact that we greenlit not one, not two, but three of those movies does in fact say something about us, okay? I'm not saying, okay, they're awesome, whatever. I'm not saying what it says about us. I'm saying that it says something about us, all right? Uh, Anyway, now that I've offended all of our John Wick fans in here, uh, it's really, really good to see you guys this morning. We are beginning a new series where we are journeying through the life of David together. Uh, If you're unfamiliar, uh, David is actually a pretty big figure in the scriptures, specifically in the Old Testament. He wrote a significant chunk of the Psalms. Over 60 chapters in the Old Testament are devoted to his life. And more importantly, he was the king of God's people, the nation of Israel. And he was referred to by God as a man after God's own heart. Uh, and I'm really excited for us to get into this series together for a couple of reasons. Number one, that the, old, the one reason I'm really, really excited about it is that I find that the Old Testament is really, really valuable to us as believers. I think it's really easy for us as Christians, especially 21st century Christians, to kind of avoid the Old Testament because it feels a little foreign to us. But that would actually be a mistake because it's really, really important because Jesus did not come into the world without context, okay? He came as a first century Jew with Jewish heritage in a Jewish culture as a part of the Jewish story. And so the Old Testament actually sets the context for the New Testament, specifically the person and work of Jesus. Secondly, there's arguably no character in the Old Testament who plays a bigger role in how we understand the life and work of Jesus than King David. In Jewish history, King David was sort of the archetype for God's king. Now, he was ultimately imperfect uh, and not the king that was needed because God's people needed God as king. But when the New Testament calls Jesus the Messiah, that's the Jewish way of saying that Jesus is the one who came to do what David could not do and reestablish God's kingdom on earth and reign forever as God's forever king. 
And so the hope is, is that we look at David's life together, that it would more fully form our understanding and our faith in Jesus and give us a more robust understanding of how God operates in the world. And so we're going to begin this morning in 1 Samuel 16. So if you want to grab a Bible and turn there, that would be absolutely fantastic. We'll be in 1 Samuel 16, verses 1 through 13. Uh, As you're flipping there or turning there in uh, your phone or whatever it may be, I have a couple of notes for us as we begin. I just want a couple of things I want to say kind of right here out of the gate. Uh, The first of which is this. We are not studying David because David is a hero. Okay, I just want to go ahead and put that out there. There is a tendency to think that every character in the Bible is supposed to be some sort of person to be admired and followed, but that is simply not true. David does do some heroic, admirable, and even exemplary things at times, but he also does some really, really terrible things, and we're going to look at those together too. Uh, But honestly, that is precisely the reason why we needed a Messiah, because David is not the hero in God's story. God is the hero in God's story. And so I just wanted us to get this out of here right at the beginning, that what we are doing is we are not aiming to learn eight ways to be more like David. That is not the goal of this series. Second thing I want to bring up here as we're getting in is just that the majority of the Old Testament, especially the portion that we're going to be studying through this series, is what we would call narrative. And what that means is, is that it's written as a story. It's not written like Paul's letters, which are pretty straightforward teaching and instruction. So what this means for us is we're going to have to do a little bit of extra work to get underneath these texts a little bit. We're going to have to do a little bit of extra work to unpack their meaning and their implications for us. And so uh, in an effort to help us do that, we've got some tools for you. Uh, So you probably noticed on your way in, there was a packet of content sitting in your seats. Uh, I just wanted to draw your attention to that real quickly. These are resources that we are trying to make available to you throughout this series. Uh, You'll see that it's our daily Bible reading plan to kind of keep you engaged in the content throughout the week as we are reading and studying together, uh, as well as our weekly scripture guide, uh, which is just a little bit more of some of the background research information into the text that we'll be studying, as well as our life group guide, where we can kind of pull all this together uh, and discuss and grow and apply God's word in our life group context. I wanted to uh, put some printed copies in your hands this week just so you could see them, but let you know that all of those things are available online for you uh, in case you're worried about saving the trees or something like that, whatever whatever that may be. You can find those things online. Uh, Additionally, if you go to our series page on the website, you'll also find a link to our bookstore where you can find some books that have helped inspire some of the series and uh, sort of serve as some companions to this series. So if you're a book person or somebody who wants to dig a little bit deeper, I just want you to know that those resources are out there for you. But all that being said, let's get started where we first get introduced to David in 1 Samuel 16. What I'm going to do is I'm going to walk us through the story first, and then I'm going to draw out the implications for our lives, all right? So let's get busy. Let's go. Verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Okay, so we need to, we need to set the stage here just a little bit. This is around the year 1000 BC, before the events of 1 and 2 Samuel, which by the way, just for your reference, uh, 1 and 2 Samuel are really just one book uh, that in our English versions get broken up into two. But before the events of the books of Samuel, Israel was a small collection of 12 tribes led by leaders that, we, that were called judges who would periodically deliver the people from outside threats. So Samuel here is a prophet and the last of these judges, okay? The people come to Samuel, up to this point, the people come to Samuel and ask to move from this judge-style government to a monarchy like the nations around them. And 1 and 2 Samuel basically cover God's response to their request and his establishment of a unified Israelite kingdom. And where we pick up is towards the downfall of the first appointed king, a guy named Saul. 
So God first told Samuel to anoint Saul as king. And Saul was the type of guy that the crowd wanted. Like he was the type of guy that the crowd would pick. He was an obvious choice. He was tall. He was charismatic. He was good looking. He was a great warrior and quite smart. He was the number one draft pick sort of guy. No one was surprised by the selection of Saul. In fact, people loved it. And Saul started out pretty good. He won some battles, he delivered the people from their enemies, but he turned out to be a king like most kings, and the power of his authority or the power of his position corrupted his heart. He became proud and self-willed. He used his position of power to serve himself instead of the people that he was called to lead. Uh, He started bending the laws of God whenever it served him, so he kind of like bent the laws of God uh, as it went well for him, and ultimately he had all the tools, but he didn't have the heart. And so what God does is God rejects him as king, and he tells Samuel to go and appoint a new one. And this is where we pick up, and this is what God says to Samuel. He says, fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me, which is a pretty logical response because going behind the king's back to anoint a new king is a pretty dangerous game to play, right? Let's keep moving. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord and invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. So God basically gives him a plan that won't raise any eyebrows. Verse 4. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him, trembling, and said, Do you come peaceably? So remember that Samuel, after all, is a judge and a prophet. So he, he swings a pretty big stick himself. And so him showing up is either a really good thing or a bad thing when he shows up at your crib. Okay, He's, he's a guy with some authority of his own. Verse 5. And he said, Peaceably I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. So Eliab is Jesse's firstborn son. And generally, the oldest son is the one who is looked at as the one with the most power and prestige of all those in the family. It's part of the rights of the firstborn. And Eliab looks the part. He looks kingly. He's tall, good-looking commanding presence, a Jewish Dwayne the Rock Johnson, if that's a helpful image for you, okay? But God says, this isn't the guy. This isn't the guy. This isn't who I have chosen. Verse 7, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Now, This is a pretty big deal, okay? You might want to underline that because we're going to come back to it in just a few minutes, all right? But for the time being, what you got to know is that ancient kings were almost always in power because of their physical stature and fighting abilities. Basically, if you could beat up everyone in the room, you got to rule. That's how, how this worked. And so here is Samuel, and he sees the biggest guy, and he says, this has to be God's guy. He looks the part. God would never swipe left on a guy this tall. It just wouldn't happen. That's a tender reference for those of you who are unfamiliar, okay? Uh, this is one of those rare moments, I think, when the world of the author and our world actually overlap a little bit. Because this is a very American way of thinking, right? This is a very, very Amer- uh, American way of thinking. Like, we get this. We, we do this. We make snap, snap judgments all the time about people, even ourselves, based on appearances. So, for example, when you see Brandon and I get up here, here's what you probably think. You probably think, you know, those are marginally athletic middle-aged men. 
marginally athletic young men. They were probably more book people than sports people in high school. That's probably their MO. And listen, you would be right about me, okay? You would be 100% right about me. But what Brandon will never tell you is that he was actually an all-conference defensive back with the stickiest hands you've ever seen in your life. The kid could flat out play football, but he would never tell you that. Just go up and ask him and let him give you some stories. I'm not lying to you. But you wouldn't think that just by looking at us. We say, you know, we say things like, don't judge a book by its cover. But the reality of it is, is we all kind of think it's a little bit easier if we do, right? Like, we all think it's just easier to make these judgments about, pe- about people and ourselves. More seriously, uh, we look at the car someone drives, or the neighborhood they live in, or the clothes they wear, or what their kids do, or what their insta-feeds put out there, and we just draw conclusions about them, sometimes positive and sometimes negative. Conclusions about whether or not we think they're trustworthy or someone to be listened to. Conclusions about whether or not we'd get along with them or want to invite them to our house for dinner. Conclusions about what they care about and what they value and whether or not they're right or wrong in those values and those cares. And some of this we get honest, right? Because it seems like there's no place in the world where outsides are more important than right here in 21st century America. I mean, you get... You get barraged every day on your drive to work and as you're flipping through your phone with images of certain standards of beauty or certain standards of success or the good life that you're told you're supposed to have and you need. And they come at you from every single angle, telling you that you need to have this image or that life that, or, or the life that looks this way. And the message is, real simply, that appearances matter, that what you present to people actually matters. And God's words to Samuel here are, hey, listen, this is not how I work. This is not how I work. This is not how I operate. I don't see as you see. I don't judge as you judge. I don't work the way that you do. And this actually becomes the definitive thing about David receiving God's crown. Let's keep moving. Verse 8. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one, so not the secondborn either. Then Jesse made Shema, or however you say that, pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one, not the thirdborn. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass by before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all of your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. So the word youngest here in Hebrew is the word katan. Kind of sounds like the settler's game, but it's not. It's different. All right. It's katan. And it's a, bit, it's a bit more difficult to translate than just youngest because it combines the ideas of youth with lesser than or inconsequential. To say all that Jesse is saying isn't really, all that Jesse is saying is that he's the youngest. Isn't, it's not really pejorative enough to really get after what he's saying. Most Hebrew scholars say that it carries the connotation of runt, that what Jesse, David's father, is saying is that David is the runt of the litter. I mean, this is the type of stuff that puts us in counseling, right? Top it off, he's given the job of tending sheep, which despite what the Christmas story has romanticized for you, was not an admirable job in in this world. It was a Mike Rowe-style dirty job reserved for the lowest rungs of society, okay? So David is out here doing the worst of all trades. And in Jesse's mind, there is no scenario in which David was a possible option. 
That's what you have to see here. In David's father's mind, there is no chance that David is a possible option. He doesn't even think he's worth bringing along with the rest of the family to worship God. The subtle implication here is that there is no chance that David could possibly be what God is looking for. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. That word ruddy, some say, means that he was redheaded like Esau. Uh, others say that he was dirty, disheveled, and smelled like the pasture. But he had pretty eyes, so there was that for him. But the point is, the point that they're making here is that he just doesn't look like a king. He doesn't have a kingly presence, or he doesn't look like a warrior. He's a dirty little kid with a baby face. He's not the rock. He's more like Justin Bieber, okay? And, and listen, uh, not... And not, what do you mean, Justin Bieber, but like, one less lonely girl, Justin Bieber. Okay, like that, that's the space we're navigating right now. Now, to be fair, David eventually grows up, and he actually grows up and becomes strong and a competent soldier. But the issue at this point is that he is young, undignified, and nobody really knows how he's going to turn out. Let's keep moving. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. This unlikely choice is my choice. Verse 13. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose and went to Ramah. And this is how David, the great king of Israel's history, is given the crown. In a culture that is oversaturated with origin stories of young nobodies defying the odds and rising to fame, all right, that, that's where we live. And so it's difficult for the, significant, excuse me, the significance of this to really have an impact on us. But this story, especially for the original audience, is meant to make you go, what? Huh? This, this is what God did? God picked the runt fresh off the field? That's not how this is supposed to work. That's not how any of this is supposed to work. Imagine that you're potentially familiar with all the things that made David famous, the slaying of Goliath, the security and the peace that he brought into the kingdom, how he moved the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem and made plans to build the temple where God would dwell with his people. And you learn that this is how it went down for him, that this is how he was made king. You're supposed to read it and think, this is different. Especially compared to Saul, you're supposed to find it strange and unimpressive that here's a kid whose father doesn't even think highly enough to call him to the meeting, and yet he is the one that God chooses as the future king. And the whole point that the writer of Samuel wants his audience to understand behind God's unlikely selection of this unlikely king through this unlikely process is that God does not see things the way we see things. God does not see things the way we see things. And that affects everything about what God does. And that has what I consider profound implications for your life and how you relate to God. And I'm going to give you three this morning. Let me show you what I mean. The first is this, that God does not see you like you see you. God does not see you like you see you. Verse 7 says, man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. God sees the heart. He sees what's on the inside, not just what's on the outside. And depending on where you're coming from this morning, that is either a really horrifying or a really comforting reality for you. 
Here's why it might be horrifying. The game many of us often play is one where we just manage outside appearances to the world. Like many of us are chiefly concerned with our outward appearance and how we're perceived by others. So for many of us, what we do is we discern what those around us or people we admire also admire, and then we try to step into that, whether it's a vision of success or a vision of beauty or anything in between. We try to step into these things that will make the world around us think well of us. I'll give you an example. Uh, anybody, anybody remember Jinkos? Anybody? Anybody brave enough to admit that they wore them back in the day? I know I'm dating myself. Hey, I see that hand. Amen, bro. That's what I'm talking about. Okay, at least, at least one. Uh, for those of you who are under 30 here, let me just explain to you what, what this was, all right? Uh, it was uh, the late 90s, which what a time to be alive, right? Like, I mean, just beautiful time for American culture. Uh, I was in middle school, and when I was in middle school, Jinkos were those super wide leg jeans, like super wide leg jeans that were popular with a certain group of folks, na namely the uh, skater crowd. Uh, and when I was in middle school, it was like within a matter of weeks, they were all all of a sudden, just wearing these hilariously wide-legged jeans, like a total change of wardrobe from what they were wearing the day before. And if you ask them, hey, man, why are you wearing those now? What they would say would be, well, because I think they're cool. Really? Like, really, bro? You Okay, all right, maybe. Or maybe you discern what the people around you think are cool, and you think if you wear those, people will think you're cool by association. You just discerned what, what will get you admired and by the right people, and you just kind of stepped into that role. And look, we can make fun of middle schoolers in the 90s because they deserve to be made fun of, but you and I do the exact same thing. You and I do the exact same thing as adults. We tend to judge based on clothes or accents or cars or houses or college or resumes or jobs or neighborhoods and all kinds of things. And we think that if we can get the outside looking right, if we can get the outside looking the part, if I can look respectable and put together or admirable by those around me, then that's what makes me okay. And this is not just a social thing that we do with other people. We transfer this mentality onto God all the time. We think that if we can manage our image enough for God, then he too will accept us. So if I teach my kids the right things, or I go to the right groups, or I participate in the right church activities, or vote a certain way, then of course God is good with me. Of course he's good with me. If I confess my anger towards my spouse, listen, if I confess my anger, not the self-righteousness that led me to that anger, mind you, but the anger. If I confess that uh, to others, then certainly I'm going to appear penitent enough for, before God, and at least for others, that I'll be okay. And what winds up happening is we spend our lives working on all the wrong things. We spend our lives working on image management for those that we're around. We're constantly working on the outside and not working on the inside. And what God says to us in this text is he says, I see through all of that. I see through every last bit of that. And I am more concerned with what's on the inside, your character, your motives, your heart, than how you appear or come across to others. This is Jesus' chief beef with the Pharisees. In Matthew 23, he says, You are like whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, but full of dead bones and filth on the inside. Their lives look put together and respectable in front of others, but inside they're full of pride and arrogance and confidence in their own works above faith on the inside. They appear to know God, but in fact, 
they don't. In fact, God actually opposes them. And if you're here this morning playing that game, the same is true for you, all right? God is not fooled by your outward appearance. Your car, your bank account, your social status, your altruistic insta-feed, whatever it is, even all of your Christian-looking good works, do not fool him to the true condition of your heart. They don't. But here's why it might be encouraging for you. Because if you are keenly aware of that sinfulness, if you're keenly aware of your heart's failure to love God and love others, such that it leads you to faith in Christ, where you're trusting in Christ above yourself, God sees that too. God sees that too. And the scriptures say that when that is our posture, what has actually happened is God has given us a new heart in the place of our old one, a new heart like his. In fact, this is what made David a man after God's own heart and why we learn later that God chose him because in contrast to Saul, David trusted God over and above men, the world, and himself. And if you're humble enough to admit your sin and need of him, when God sees you, he doesn't see you as you see you. He doesn't see you or define you by your latest failure. He doesn't see you or define you by your sin or your struggle. And he doesn't turn away from you in those moments. Instead, he sees you clothed with the righteousness of Christ. He sees Christ in, over, above, and through you. Listen, I, come into, I bring this up because I come into contact with Christians all the time that think of themselves so poorly. Like just have such a negative mental narrative of themselves. Their inner narrative goes something like this. Like, oh, I'm just, I'm just so broken. I'm just not who I should be. I'm just not good enough. I'm, I'm actually pretty unlovable. And it plays out in all kinds of ways in their lives, whether it be depression or anxiety or insecurity in relationships, you name it. It just comes out. But friends, if you are in Christ, this is not how God thinks of you. This is not how God thinks of you. It's not how he sees you. And it's not how you should be thinking about yourself either. And to be honest, it's just as much self-righteousness as the person who thinks their good works make God accept them. It's still believing that your externals, your appearance is what matters. And it should be repented of just the same. And I believe that some of you need to hear this this, hear this, this morning. Because you can be just as enslaved to sin by living in it and obsessing over it. And no matter which side of the coin you fall on, I hope you hear the good news that's available to you in Jesus this morning, that in Christ, God does not see you like you see you. And I hope in one way, it leads you to repentance, and in another way, it encourages you to know that you are loved by the Father unendingly. And Christ is the proof. But there's another way that's ought to encourage you this morning. God's unlikely choosing of an unlikely king teaches us that God uses unlikely people. And that includes unlikely people like you. That includes unlikely people like you. David is not who you think of when you think of a king. In the ancient, in the ancient world, the world always gave the oldest son or the biggest guy all the power. And the most beautiful women always got the most powerful men. But every place in the scriptures where God works, he works in a way that reverses the world's values. He, he always goes with the younger son, 
So it's Abel, not Cain. It's Isaac, not Ishmael. It's Jacob, not Esau. It's Moses, not Aaron. Or he goes with the unwanted woman, the old woman, or the barren woman. So it's Sarah, not Hagar. It's Leah, not Rachel. It's Hannah. It's Tamar. God always works with the girl nobody wants and the son who is forgotten. God loves and works through unlikely people. And there is no clearer picture of this than with Jesus. God's king, his Messiah, his Christ, is also, like David, an unlikely king. He's from the same family tree of David, uh, just further down it. In the ancient world, the family tree was a form of resume. And Jesus contains not just kings, but murderers and prostitutes and a bunch of nobodies from nowhere. He's born in the same podunk town in the middle of nowhere called Bethlehem, born to an unwed teenage mother, raised in Nazareth, which is such a nothing place that when Jesus meets a guy named Nathaniel, Nathaniel's first reaction to him is, can anything good possibly come from Nazareth? I mean, like, wow. Think so little of that place. In other words, this guy can't be the Messiah. He's not the right type of person. He spent the first 30 years of his life in a trade, working a regular blue-collar job, not in the elite halls of academia, not in a life of luxurious privilege. He would not have been on anybody's who's who list or who-to-watch list. And when he arrives on the scene, he doesn't spend his time cavorting with the rich and the famous, but with the sinners and the outcasts and the folks that no one would ever want to associate with. In the voice of public opinion, Jesus was not the right type of person to be king. But over and over and over again, the Bible is trying to show us that God doesn't think the way you and I think. He doesn't have the same categories that you and I have. He has been and always will be about showing off just how much wiser and more powerful he is than the way the world operates. This has been and always will be his mode of operation, and that includes you. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 29. Brothers and sisters, Think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. Why did God pick David? Why did God pick you? Not because of what we bring to the table. God didn't pick David because he was strong or tall or wise or rich or powerful, but because David wasn't any of those things so that God could really show off how wise and powerful he was, not David. Now, eventually David does become those things, but not in his own strength, in God's strength. In verse 13 of 1 Samuel 16, make sure we understand that. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. David became extraordinary, not because there was anything extraordinary about him, but because God's spirit was in him. If there were a quiz on the type of people that God would be most likely to use, you would probably not score very high. And I don't mean that to offend you, okay? But none of us would probably score very high. But if you are his and his spirit is in you, then you are the exact kind of person that God uses. 
And that's exactly what the world needs. The world doesn't need, the people around you don't need your appearances, okay? They don't need externals. They need a person with substance, a person with God's spirit. And so let me just put this out here for you today. Do you expect God to use you? Like, do you expect that? Is it your actual expectation that God will use you? Are you surprised when it actually happens? And you might say, well, listen, well, I mean, you can't be talking about me. I'm, I'm a new Christian. I haven't been a Christian for very long. So maybe one day, but I'm not there yet. No, I mean you right now. God wants to use you to bless and help other people. Ah, well, there's a lot that I don't understand yet. I don't have the answers to some questions. Okay, great. Let's get you some books and get you learning. That sounds wonderful. But God still intends to use you wherever you're at. It's not an issue of talent or ability. It's an issue of the heart. When you go to your life group, do you go there in full anticipation that God intends to use you in the lives of the other people who are there? Sometimes people will come up to me and talk with me about concern for their group, and they'll say, you know, I'm just not really getting anything out of it. And my response is virtually always, well, then stop going to get something out of it and go to give something to it. That's what God wants for you anyway. Do you expect God to use you in your spouse's life? Do you expect to be a spirit-empowered source of encouragement and growth for your husband or your wife? Do you expect for God to use you in your roommate's life? Do you expect for God to use you in your dating relationship? Like, is your intention even in your dating relationship that regardless of what happens, whether you get married or not, that you leave the other person better, more like Jesus, loving and trusting Jesus more? Do you expect that to be the way that God uses you there? I'll be honest with you, I think about this a good bit with my children. I'm often aware that I lack the things that my children need. I can't tell you how often I feel like my kids didn't get the dad they actually need, but they got me and they're having to make the best with a bad situation, right? Sometimes they need someone more patient than I am. They need someone who's less distracted. They need someone more strict at times. They need someone who has their stuff more together. They need, I feel like they need a better dad than me. And look, there's a sense in which that is true for all of us parents. Our kids need better parents than we are because they need our heavenly father. But if you are God's and his spirit is in you, if you're eager for God to use you in their lives and willing to do whatever it takes to do in pursuit of that, then you are exactly the parent that your child needs. And that's why God gave them to you. And with that in mind, I want to give us one last implication. And this is where we'll wrap up this morning. That just like God does not see you like you see you, God does not see your circumstances the way you see them either. God does not see your circumstances the way you see them either. Remember David's life before this moment. Where was it spent? It was spent out with the sheep, right? David was growing up in an, env in an environment where, at least currently, his dad didn't think much of, of him. He was seen as inconsequential. He was, given, he was the low man on the totem pole, and he was given a job to suit. And then God comes and makes him king. But even then, he doesn't get the crown immediately. In fact, we learn he just goes right back out to the pasture. He doesn't enter some sort of official training program, official king development program. He just goes back to what he was doing before all of this, to the pasture, alone, watching the sheep. And I can't imagine what was going on in David's mind and all this, sitting out in the field with a bunch of dirty sheep, knowing Samuel just came and anointed you to be king, but having nothing to do but practice hitting trees and predators with rocks from his sling thinking to himself, what the heck is going on? 
What is happening? What, what, is, what is this about? But what David doesn't know is that God is using that pasture to prepare him. In the next chapter, we hit the story of Goliath and I want to, uh, of David and Goliath, and I want to draw your attention to one detail. This is 1 Samuel 17, verses 34 through 37. But David said to Saul, Your servant, myself, used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the Lord's, the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And that is the baddest to the bone phrase verse in the Bible, right? Like, my word, yes, want to be a man like that. What gave David this type of courage and confidence, though? Why, when did David learn to trust God like this? When everyone else around him was shaking in their boots in the face of Goliath. His time in the pasture. His time in the pasture. David's faith was cultivated in the field. His preparation was in the process. And I can alliterate for days if you would like me to. But the point is, the field is right where God wanted him. He had been learning how to follow and trust God in the place of obscurity. God knew there were ways he needed to grow, character that needed developing. This is where his heart was grown because some things have, must be learned in the background. They can't be learned on the stage. And when David was out watching the sheep, David didn't know about Goliath yet, but God did. But God knew. And the problem is, in your life, you too don't know what's coming. But God does. Because God does not see like we see. And what I want to leave you with this morning is there, that there are things in your life that you are frustrated about, that you do not understand, simply because you do not know what's coming and how God intends to use them. Again, this is no more clearly in focus than with Jesus. Jesus was not what anyone expected from the Messiah. It was actually a constant problem in his life and ministry. Born to a virgin, born in an obscure rural town, no form or appearance that we would esteem him. The Messiah was supposed to want to take the throne and crucify Rome, not have Rome crucify him. It's not how we expect God to work. It sounds crazy. How could death bring life? How could poverty bring wealth? How could restraint yield freedom? How could losing my life allow me to find it? The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is not what anyone would have expected. But God is a God who sees things differently. God is a God who turns suffering into salvation. Kings don't normally come from pastures, and saviors don't normally come from crosses, but God uses unlikely processes. Do you believe that God sees you right where you are and has something for you there? Do you believe that this morning? Maybe you're in obscurity right now. Maybe your circumstances are undesirable or difficult. Do you believe that God sees you and he sees that and he knows what he is doing in the midst of it? Maybe you're in a place right now that feels like the pasture, like it's just you and a bunch of dirty sheep. 
Listen, don't waste that. Don't waste that. Let God use it. Let him shape you like David so that your life becomes a very powerful message and testament to him. And I draw this out here because I know that the majority of our church are, in the, are between the ages of 30 and 45 with small children. And the unique thing that happens in this life stage is you hit a point where you realize that the life you have is the life you've got. You hit this point where the idealism of your 20s is over and life just isn't quite what you thought it was going to be. More days feel like a monotonous grind than the ones that don't. And if you're here and you're in your 20s, I'm sorry to be a Debbie Downer, but this is coming for you too. It's coming for you too. It comes for all of us. No man has successfully created heaven on earth for themselves, and you won't either. You just have to know that, all right? And what happens is, is you can start to think things like, what am I doing? What is, what is the point of this? Every day just feels like the same thing over and over and over again. I feel like my life is wasting away before my eyes. And it all feels so obscure and monotonous and ordinary and insignificant. I just wake up, I go to work, I take care of the kids, I come home, I prep dinner, I go to bed, rinse, wash, repeat. Every day is the same thing again and again. But friends, this is not how God sees it at all. The reality is God is at work in every bit of it, shaping you, working in you and through you for moments you may not even be aware of yet, cultivating your faith and your character, and hoping to turn you into a man or a woman after his own heart, too. And to be clear, I'm not just saying to hold on and endure this season because your anointing is coming, all right? Some, some of y'all know what I'm talking about, the Baptists in here, y'all don't have a clue, but it's okay, just fine, it's, it's bear with me. I'm not telling you to hang on because God is getting you ready for something awesome in this life, all right? There is one king, and his name is Jesus, and he was anointed with a, with a crown of thorns and a cross. So let's not get it twisted, okay? I'm not saying that, God, that you need to expect something awesome that God is preparing you for. But what I am talking about is your life being used for God's purposes. Whatever shape that may take. Your life becoming more like Jesus, more faith, more humility, more love, more grace, more spirit. And what I want you to understand is that your undesirable circumstances, whatever they may be, are not in the way of that goal. They are central to it. The only thing that matters today is, are you going to be faithful with what you've got? Are you going to be faithful with what you've got? You may not see what God is doing, but God does. And I'll leave you with this. There is a crown coming. Not here, not now. But as Paul writes in 2 Timothy 4, after the fight has been fought, after the race has been run, when the faith has been kept, there is laid up for you a crown of righteousness that God himself will give to you. Because the God who makes kings from unlikely people through unlikely processes will be faithful to unlikely you. Let me pray for you. God, we thank you uh, for the life of David. Uh, we thank you that you have recorded it for us, that we can glean from the wisdom of ages past. 
God, I pray uh, for us as your people, as we continue to investigate David's life, that you would point us to Jesus through it, that David would be a testament to us about your greatness and your wisdom and your power over and above our own and and the wisdom and power of this world, that we would see how you work in unlikely ways and be encouraged that the same is true for the here and now in us and in our circumstances. God, I pray that you would remind us that you see the heart and that that would have the appropriate amount of conviction for us, that we cannot hide from you, that you see every square inch of our soul, the best places and the dark, crooked ones, and you have grace for each. And God, I pray that you would lead us to repentance and faith, knowing that it is not in us that we boast, like we don't boast in our own works, we don't put our confidence in our own work, but we put our confidence in you. So God, free us from the management of image, free us to faith and trust in you, rooting our identity squarely in your love for us, that we are not our best days and we are not our worst days, but in Christ we are as Christ. Help us with that. We thank you so much for your love and your mercy to us. Lead us, and it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this audio from Midtown Fellowship in Lexington. We are in the middle of a two-month capital campaign to raise money to buy a permanent facility on East Main Street, right in the heart of Lexington, South Carolina. If you have been blessed at all by this podcast and would like to give to that over and above your regular giving to your church, wherever you call home, we would love to have you participate. Feel free to visit movetoeastmain.com for more information.